This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm thinking we're now at season five. I've just arbitrarily decided to begin the new season today. Probably because it's a new year, but I can do those sorts of things. Uh, before we get into depth in the ufology aspect of this thing, one, one quick comment here. It bothers me immensely. And, and I've talked about this a little bit before. And it's the people who um, criticize my work not because uh, they disagree with some aspects of it or that I've done something, I've made an error in my logical analyses or anything like that. It's just they don't believe in aliens and they, or they don't like my stand on aspects of the UFO phenomena, so they attack without good reason. You know, if you want to, if you want to uh, chat with me or, or discuss things that I've written or said, I'm all for that. Uh, I think discussion is the way we work out our differences, but it's also the way we can move to the larger truth, whatever that truth may be. You know, I've been criticized for my stand on cattle mutilations, for example. I don't believe that there's an extraterrestrial element to them. I don't know why alien creatures would travel the interstellar distances to get to Earth to slaughter cows. Makes no, makes no logical sense. Uh, the investigations of them have been a little bit amateurish. They reject some of the uh, proper explanations that have been offered, and I've, I've read all this stuff. But what I, the point simply is I periodically revisit that aspect of ufology because there might be something new, there might be something I've missed, there might be some direction we can go to answer those questions. And I have, in, in literally decades of looking into cattle mutilations, I've never discovered anything that moves me away from the idea that it's all trust really based. It's misidentification of predator damage. It's misidentification of scavengers. It's people making, slaughtering the cows uh, for um, hoaxes, things like that. We never found any extraterrestrial component to that. And I've looked at literally dozens of them. My favorite was uh, J Dr. Jefferson Davis. I always remembered his name, Jefferson Davis, living in Wisconsin, and talking about a cow that had been mutilated in his area that he was the vet, vet for. And he told me that the cow had been sickly from its birth, and that the farmer had probably done the mutilations himself because if the cow died of natural causes, insurance didn't kick in. But if it had been killed and mutilated, then he got the insurance money. And I think that's kind of an aspect of it that we all need to look at. The point simply is because of that attitude or my attitude on abductions or crop circles or other aspects of the phenomena, I sometimes get attacked. And I don't think it's it's fair in today's environment. We, we see so much about cancel culture and all of that going on. I think there's an awful lot of that going on because you can hide behind your keyboard and make all these outrageous claims and then... Uh, 
vanish into the woodwork so nobody can, can criticize you. I say to anybody, look at my military record. It's uh, on file. You can see that I haven't really made anything up there. Look at my blog, um, vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, which is my mostly true stories of Vietnam. And I say mostly true, and here's why. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this before. I had believed, literally decades, that we left our Thanksgiving meal in the serving line because the flight was scrambled. I was going through the letters that I'd sent home during my, my time in Vietnam and discovered that on Thanksgiving, we hadn't been at our home base. We had been deployed to Tainin on some kind of special Thanksgiving mission. And then whoever it was up there had promised to, to feed us there. We didn't get scrambled. We went to Tainin. We stayed on the ground. The mission didn't come off. We went back to Kuchi. On other occasions, the flight crews were scrambled, and I remember leaving the meals on the tables. I remember leaving meals on the serving line because the flight was scrambled in the in the middle of the day. So the idea that we did that on Thanksgiving wasn't quite true, but the fact is that we had done that in, in the past, and that's kind of my point there. So I'll, we'll move on from that, that sort of thing. I think that what we need to look at is what's going on with UFOs today in the congressional arenas and the promises of investigations, which began with the ATEP um, release of video data back a number of years ago now from, uh, I think the data was collected in 2004 and 2015, the videos were collected at that time, showing some kind of an anomalous object on the, um, the heads up display or the various sensor displays in the cockpits of fighter planes, Navy fighter planes. The Navy came out and said, yeah, these are real videotapes. And one of the problems I have with that is people interpreted that to mean, well, yeah, we're, we're looking at real UFOs, real uh, physical objects. And that really wasn't what the Navy was saying. What the Navy was saying, yeah, these things were recorded on our equipment in those fighter planes, but that does not mean it's an alien spacecraft. And I think a lot of people ran to the extraterrestrial much more quickly than they should have. Um, but we looked at we looked at that, and it had got, gander, gathered a lot of interest in the public arena, as well as people coming out of the work saying woodwork saying, "Well, I was I was involved in these things. I saw these things." Uh, no doubt they did see those things, but an awful lot of it was gathered electronically. And here's my problem with that: there's a video on YouTube that I saw, and I think I linked to it on my blog at some point, where a guy had taped his cell phone to night vision equipment and recorded it and was getting some of the same kind of images that the the Navy released with their cockpit videos, which suggest it is some sort of an electronic uh, problem, some, some kind of an electronic glitch that creates these images electronically when there's really nothing there. So if you're looking at it through the sensors arrays, you see the object, but if you were to look outside the cockpit or you could see outside the cockpit, you might not see anything in the sky at all. And I think that that's one of the things that we miss when we look at these sorts of things. We had the investigation that was an outgrowth of this that required a report to be given to Congress on June 25th of this year. And I always make note of the fact that's also the anniversary of the Custer Massacre, another great disaster in military history, at least for the United States Army, not necessarily for the, for the, uh, the Lakota. But the point simply is, that report told us nothing. They said, well, we had 144 
reports and we only solved one of them. But how many incidents were there? You get multiple reports from one incident. And if so, how many incidents really were there? And what kind of investigation was conducted? It seemed based on what went on is that the um, mandate was given to the military or to the intelligence community to investigate these things and they blew it off. They just paid no attention to it. And as the data approached and the news media became more interested in it and there was more activity about uh, reporting this, they realized they were gonna have to come up with something. So they threw something together as quickly as they possibly could. They didn't invest a lot of time or resources in their investigation. And we ended up with this report that told us basically nothing. Uh, and there was a demand at that point that there would be another report within 90 days. Materials, and it was it's sort of related to disclosure, and that's disclosure is the idea that the government is going to come forth and announce exactly what they have in their files. And I think too many people in the UFO community think disclosure means they're going to show up and say, yeah, UFOs are real, they're extraterrestrial, and they've been here for literally thousands of years, if we go back to the ancient reports. I don't think that's going to happen. I thought when the videos were first released that we were moving toward disclosure, but then I see how it's been manipulated since then, and that we're not really moving toward, toward disclosure. It's sort of more of a cover-up. But what's happened recently is Congress, of course, passed their big military budget in December, I believe it was, and one of the things in that budget was a requirement to create uh, an investigative agency to look into UFOs. It was going to be um, it was going to be covered by the intelligence community or the responsibility of the intelligence community, and the military was going to be involved in this officially mandated, congressionally passed investigation into UFOs. And my first thought was, well, yeah, it's the first time they've done something like that, meaning passing legislation. But it's not the first time that something like that has been proposed. And then we go back to what I call twining, the twining memo. We're now in twining 2.0. But Lieutenant General Nathan Twining was the commanding general of the Air Materiel Command in 1947 when the UFOs, the flying saucers, first appeared on the American landscape in the national media. And we look at, at that investigation in the summer of, of 1947. And according to Ed Ruppelt, who was one time the chief of Project Blue Book, looking at the documentation and the administrative files from that period while he was the, the chief of Blue Book, said that the Pentagon was in a panic. They didn't know what was going on. And you're thinking, okay, I understand that. Suddenly, Kenneth Arnold to see these strange things. Suddenly, people are reporting them all around the country. Some of the people reporting them are military pilots. Some of them are scientists. Some of them are well-qualified people. And they don't know what's going on. Is this some kind of a Soviet invention that they're now deploying over the United States to spy on us? Is it some sort of a Chinese? Uh, I, I think at that time the Chinese weren't quite as technologically advanced as they are now. But was it some kind of communist weapon? Was there some kind of threat to the United States? And they didn't know what it was. As time passed, they realized the likelihood that it was a threatening proposition lessened. They didn't show up. The invasion fleets didn't show up. Uh, nothing more was found, and they began to relax a little bit. A fellow named uh, 
George Shogun, he was a brigadier general within an, in, in an intelligence arena with a fellow named um, George, he was lieutenant colonel, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But they put together a document they called basically a, an estimate of the situation and sent it to uh, the right field air material command for review. Here is a number of UFO sightings or flying saucer sightings that we find particularly um, strange, perplexing. Uh, what do you what do you think of these sorts of things? And I think they fully expected that the reply would be, this is a top secret project. You don't need to follow it any further. Forget it. We've got it handled. Instead, Twining uh, wrote a letter. I think it was actually written by Howard McCoy, who was the chief of intelligence for him, wrote a letter that said basically the phenomenon, meaning the flying saucers, is something that is real. It's not a visionary or uh, fictitious. It's a real phenomenon. And he required the creation of an official agency, military agency, classified investigation with a very high priority to get to the bottom of this thing. Uh, that was what was proposed by Twining within his authority to do so. Uh, didn't need congressional approval or anything like that. There was something that he could do, set up this investigation into the UFO phenomenon, the flying saucer phenomenon as it was. It began officially, I think, at the beginning of the new year, which would have been January of 1948. And from that point on, we get to the mess we are in now. I'm going to take a break here and get back to this when we come back and fill, this, fill you in on the history of that, let you know that I am uh, just finishing up a book, or just my book on Leveland UFO sightings has just been published or will be published tomorrow officially. It's available now on Amazon, so take a look at that. I will be back on the Exome Broadcast Network right after this, so please stick around. Flying solo tonight on the uh, the different perspective simply because it was hard to line up a guest and there was a lot of ancillary things going on that nobody needs to know about that uh, suggested that maybe the best thing to do is not bother somebody else with uh, the program tonight. So we're flying flying solo, but I am doing my best to social distance by sitting all by myself in this room without anybody else around at the moment. Well, when we went away, I was talking about the Twining letter from September of 1947, setting up a, an official investigation into UFOs. And the idea was this would be a classified investigation. The name picked was Project Sign, but it was told to the press it was Project Saucer. I don't know why it was necessary for the deceit at that point, but that's what they did. So if you read a lot of the stuff from 1947, you'll see them, the reporters, the UFO investigators, the writers talking about Project Saucer, but it's really Project Sign. The name was eventually compromised, and we all know what it, what it became. But the point is, here was an official investigation um, brought to us by, at the highest levels of the military, Lieutenant General Twining was in command of the Air Material Command, um, he would eventually become the chief of staff of the Air Force. 
so he was in a very important general officer at the time setting up this investigation. And in the beginning, it seemed that they were doing a legitimate job. I mean, they were going out investigating it. They were talking to the witnesses and this sort of thing. I have a problem with their investigation of the Mantell incident. That was the Air National Guard pilot who uh, crashed chasing a flying saucer in on January 8th, 1948 um, in Kentucky. I think the Air Force was under pressure to explain that away because the pilot had been killed in the crash. And I believe they, 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 attempt, they attempted to explain it first as a balloon, then it was Venus, then it was two balloons in Venus. The ultimate explanation turns out, I believe, to be a skyhook balloon that was launched in Minnesota the day before and had drifted that far south. These skyhook balloons were polyethylene, gigantic things, maybe 100, 200, not 200, but 120 feet in diameter. The polyethylene, the sunlight hit it right, gave it a metallic sheen, so you could be fooled by that. Mantel um, tried to get up to it, I think it was probably at 85, 90,000 feet. His F-51 didn't have the capability, and he did not have properly charged oxygen equipment on board. If you look at the medical um, investigations into uh, anoxia and hypoxia, which is either a lack, complete lack of oxygen in blood or a very diminished amount of oxygen in blood, you find out it, without the supplemental oxygen at 20,000 feet, a person will have a useful consciousness, I believe, of about 10 minutes meaning you have to have some kind of supplemental oxygen. Yes, there are people who live at high altitudes and they can do better at higher altitudes. But for the most part, people people will lose consciousness after about 10 minutes at, at 20,000 feet without supplemental oxygen. Um, some people be, begin to exhibit the um, altitude sickness at 6,000 feet. So, you know, it, it depends on who you are. At 25,000 feet, you might have three minutes and Mantell had gotten to 20,000 feet without oxygen. He'd circled for a while. He told his wingman in a somewhat garbled message he was going to go to 25,000 feet and circle for 10 minutes. And if he couldn't see anything or get any closer to the object, he was going to, to uh, descend. He didn't have 10 minutes of consciousness. He trimmed the aircraft up to climb. He got to 25,000 feet and kept climbing because he had, he had lost consciousness by that time. At about 30,000 feet, the engine torque pulled it over into a power dive. The, in, the aircraft began to disintegrate at about 19,000 feet, and it just basically fell out of the sky. Uh, the point simply is the Air Force investigation of that wasn't quite as open as it could be or could have been. I know in an accident investigations, they are classified because they want the subordinate officers to tell the truth without fear of reprisal from their commanding officer. So I understand the rationale there. But I think they also, the Air Force at this time, wanted to explain this sighting because the pilot had died in it. Not long after that, there was an estimate of the situation, the real one that they did, the high-powered one. And the chief of staff at the Air Force, Hoyt S. Vandenberg at the time, said, you didn't prove your case. And everybody who was involved in creating that estimate of the situation, saying that the UFOs were extraterrestrial, the flying saucers were extraterrestrial, basically found themselves reassigned. And everybody in the Air Force understood if you believed in UFOs, your career was in jeopardy. And it created a hostile environment for the investigation of UFOs. And it was basically just lip service until 
Um, Ruppelt came in in 1951, revitalized the investigation, and once he left, it, it descended into a debunking outfit. The point simply is we have had our experiences with this, with twining and trying to set up a legitimate investigation. Now here we are in 2022, going to set up another one. One of the outgrowths of all of this was in the late 1960s, 1967, I believe, the University of Colorado began a study of UFOs, supposed to be a scientific study. But if you go back through the documentations, you realize that wasn't the case. It was to get the Air Force off the hook. It felt itself on because they were charged with investigating UFOs. Not to mention it's their mission. If there's somebody or something flying around in our atmosphere that we don't know about, be it a, a Soviet aircraft, a Chinese aircraft, a drone, whatever it is, the Air Force is supposed to identify that and keep that from happening. And they had abdicated that responsibility with a lot of the UFO sightings. And I think that was one of the things they wanted to get rid of. We don't have to investigate this because the scientific community said there's nothing to them. So we had the Condon Committee, which was ostensibly a investigation of UFOs, a legitimate investigation, and yet um, they found exactly what the Air Force told them to find. There's letters dated in the beginning of the Condon Committee investigation telling the Condon Committee what to find. There's no threat to national security. Um, there is no scientific value in continued investigation, and we should close the project. And lo and behold, in 1969, when they issued their final report, that's exactly what they found. Now we move into 2022, and what do we have? We have the Congress mandating an investigation of UFOs with transparency, which is not going to happen. Um, and I think we're going to end up with the same sort of thing. Maybe somebody will be enthusiastic about the investigation in the beginning, but I also think there is a real hesitancy in the upper levels of the intelligence community and the military to stay away from UFOs. NASA was once asked about investigating UFOs, and NASA, this was a number of years ago, and NASA said, no, they want no part of it, because they understood the ramifications of that kind of an investigation would have on the legitimacy of their organization. Uh, SETI never wants to look at UFO sightings, which, if we proved UFOs were extraterrestrial craft, kind of sets up their mandate for listening for signals from other civilizations, because we know there's at least one out there. Um, so we have to look at all that. And now, we, now we're back to that point again, where um, Congress is going to, Congress has mandated investigation and charged various communities intelligence communities, military organizations with the investigation of it and who's going to be in charge. And that's all laid out in the documentation. And people are in the UFO community are excited about this. But I have reservations knowing the history. And you read the newspaper articles, the magazine articles about what's going on. And the reporters there don't understand the history of ufology. It takes somebody who's been around for a while. And I think that's the case in, in an awful lot of endeavors. You need somebody who's been around, regardless of the endeavor, to understand what's going on so that uh, you can not be fooled by the history of what's going on. So we've got reporters who say, well, here's something brand new or the first time Congress has mandated it. And yet Congress held investigations into UFOs in the 1960s when um, the Michigan sightings took place in, I think it was March of 1966. It was Jerry Ford's 
congressional district. And so he was pressing for congress congressional investigation. And that happened. Nothing came of it. And then Jerry Ford became president. Now you would think, well, Jerry Ford's president, he's going to be able to find out more about what's going on. But I think he was thrown into a position where his priorities were on what's going on in the world of UFOs. But how do I deal with the Soviet Union and the various crises that I've inherited from President Nixon and that sort of thing? So I think when we look at this, I, I think what's going to happen, there's going to be some enthusiasm for the investigation in the beginning. It's going to taper off um, depending on who's running it and how they're running it and what their bosses seem to think about it and what the various um, instructions they operate under are. It's supposed to be a legitimate investigation. I have my, my reservations. I hope that it is because it would validate an awful lot of the work that I've been doing and that sort of thing. But we've also seen um, the manipulation of the UFO field, and we can, we can point to the deep state. And it doesn't matter what you think about the term deep state. We know that in the United States, at least, bureaucrats at the highest levels tend to stay in those positions regardless of the administration. So a Democrat may have appointed a lot of people into the highest positions of the State Department, defense, finance, whatever department you want, treasury, whatever department you want to look at. When that administration ends, some of the top people, the very top people move out, but the underling bureaucrats in the higher up positions, they remain so that the Republican inherits those people and they're manipulating the situations, they're manipulating the data. When that Republican is out of power, the Republican administration out of power, we replace the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and some of these higher level positions, but some, but the other bureaucrats remain where they are and they're controlling the situation. They understand the institutional history of what's going on so they can manipulate the situation. I had said, and I point this out in UFOs in the Deep State, that if I was the president, I could get the answers about UFOs because I'm the president. I call in my DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, and I say, Director, Mr. Director, I want to know what every, everything you know about uh, UFOs. And his response is probably going to be, I'll get back to you on that with Mr. President. I don't have that at my fingertips, and there's a number of agencies involved. We'll collect the data, and we'll prepare a report for you. Somehow that report never gets, pay, never gets um, made, never gets written. The investigation never goes. And then other things come along to divert the president's attention. And we, we can look at, at, at Jimmy Carter, who DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, when he came into power was George W. Bush. And in the book, I talk about this, where um, Carter is sitting there with Bush, and Carter says to him, I want to know about UFOs. And, and Bush says, I would like to remain the Director of Central Intelligence when you are inaugurated as president. Carter says, well, I'm sorry, I'm bringing my own guy in. And Bush's response then is, well, it's highly classified. You don't have the need to know yet. You're not the president. Then so we got the guy who's going to be president coming in and told he's, he can't have that information. Jimmy Carter, when he came in, then tried to get some of the additional information, but somehow it never got to him. And we ended up with the Iranian hostage crisis, which was, was at the end of his uh, presidency which I think diverted his attention. So we see how the deep state tends to manipulate the data in that specific way. And 
I can see no advantage to the deep state for disclosure. Disclosure of the UFO information could relate, uh, could become a problem for them. It could result in a decrease in their power because suddenly they're saying there's another adversary out there who's more powerful than we are that has access to technology that we do not understand. And that could adversely affect the power structure in Washington, D.C. and around the world. And it could result in uh, financial uh, retribution, if you will. People who had lots of money suddenly finding some of their resources and their capabilities um, being diminished because of this information. So I think that's one of the problems they have to fight with disclosure is the deep state. And we'll take a look at that in a little bit more detail in just a moment, because I'm going to have to take a break here. I will note that there are some fine programs on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So go to xzbn.net, scroll down the list of programming, and you'll find many things that will interest you. I will be back right after this on a different perspective, so please stick around. I'm flying solo today, trying to hit some of the high points from last year, where things were going and where they might be, go where they came from and where they may be going, I suppose I should say. When I went away there for moments, we were talking a little bit about the deep state. And I looked at this in depth, inadvertently. I didn't, I, I was going to do a book on OSI manipulating the UFO situation and it evolved into a book looking at the deep state and how Air Force Office of Special Investigations manipulated UFO data. Um, but it, it also keyed me into this idea that while we vote for uh, representation in uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch, uh, sometimes those people are more beholding to their benefactors, people who donated an awful lot of money to their campaigns. And so they look at their issues through that sort of a lens. You know, if I represent, we'll just pick Texas because we've had a lot of talk about oil production, uh, or we could talk about North Dakota for that matter. But um, if legislation comes up that affects the uh, oil industry in some fashion, those representatives from Texas or North Dakota or Alaska or some of these other states might find themselves pressured by big oil to vote a certain way. And um, I think that that's one of the things we have to have to remember in the way things work here, that there can be pressure. And there may be those uh, outside the government, and certainly those inside the government who don't want us to know 
everything that's known about UFOs by the government. There is a lot in there, and you find hints of it periodically. There was discussion in the Project Blue Book files about gun camera films. Supposedly, lots of gun camera films from, from fighters intercepting UFOs, but there are very few films in the Project Blue Book files. So you have to say, where did those gun camera films go? And the next question becomes, um, if you were withholding those gun camera films because of the technology used in those fighters to intercept the UFOs, then I can understand why those wouldn't be in the Project Blue Book files, but they should be somewhere. And at this point in time, some of those old technologies are now obsolete and irrelevant. I think specifically Chester Lytle, who was quite the inventor, um, worked on the trigger for the atomic bomb at Los Alamos, for example, knew an awful lot of the high-ranking military people. He was a friend of Butch Blanchard, who was the commander at uh, uh, 509th Bomb Group in Roswell during the, 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 during the UFO crash there. So he had insight, and he told Don Schmidt and me at one point, he had been at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and F-4 Phantoms were engaged in a intercept of a UFO, that they were watching real time through the uh, television cameras in the fighters. You wonder where that, that information went. It didn't make it to Blue Book. There are cases in the Blue Book files that are just listed case missing. What was important about those? There are other cases that we know were submitted to the Air Force, never showed up there. The point being that, that there was other information going elsewhere in the UFO phenomena that we're not privy to. And I think that's one of the reasons we find ourselves not moving toward disclosure as fast as we can. And I think this latest activity by the congressional mandate, by the interest shown in this is going to evaporate not necessarily because those people have lost interest in it. I think some of the people may lose their congressional seats or find themselves replaced in other other ways, um, but because the public attention span is rather short. Uh, my attention span for UFOs has been like 50 years, but but other people it's like 50 minutes. So I think that they've they've come to the point where they mandated this information now there's a period of waiting to see what the investigation is, getting it set up, how are we going to function, who all is going to be responsible, although some of it is laid out in the congressional uh, mandate. But how are we going to operate? Who's going to be responsible for the investigations? Are we going to be using just Air Force personnel? Is it going to be intelligence um, personnel? Is it going to be the FBI? Is it going to be other um, civilian intelligence agencies involved in the investigations, that sort of thing? So I think we, we can take a look at some of that um, interest waning in the coming months. I know I'll be following as much as I can, and I'll have I'll have more about what this congressional mandate is up at my blog at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because uh, I've got some other information. I think that it needs to be laid out in a way that somebody can look at it as opposed to listen to me kind of talk about where the important important points are, and so we can take a look at all of that. But that kind of moves us into today's arena. And I did want to talk about a little bit, and it, this will transition into the, the next segment as well. Uh, I get questions periodically about my Vietnam experience. And I mentioned a little bit about this earlier in the, in the broadcast. I uh, went into the military, the Army, 
right out of high school. I think I was out of high school for three weeks before I found myself on the bus going to Fort Polk, Louisiana for very basic training. The gag was the Air Force, the Air Force, the Army had said, the Army did an experiment back in the late 1960s, taking high school graduates. If you were a high school graduate, uh, you could sign up for helicopter flight school, which I did. And I went to Fort Polk for basic training, basic infantry training. We all had it, basic infantry training. And then once that eight weeks was over, you went to AIT, which would be for some people, advanced infantry training. For the rest of us, advanced individual training. My AIT was flight school. Uh, I went to Fort Walters, learned how to fly helicopters there, learned tactics and, and, and other things, instrument flying, for example, at, at Fort Rucker, and then deployed to Vietnam. Spent a year in Vietnam. Actually spent um, uh, 355 days in Vietnam. Got a 10-day drop which meant I got to go home 10 days earlier than I was supposed to. So um, during that time, I was a helicopter pilot. I was an aircraft commander. I did practically every mission that helicopters did in the Vietnam. I actually flew Firefly, and that was the idea of the, the, the helicopter had a whole bunch of landing lights set up in the cargo compartment to shine down on the ground. And the gag was, they obviously used it at night, and it was to get the bad guys to shoot at you. And there were two gunships, one orbiting higher than the Firefly ship and one orbiting lower, so that if you were shot at, they would roll in and neutralize the enemy in that respect. I did that one night because the we had to evacuate our aircraft off Tain In, and we ended up with the Dragons, which was um, the unit doing Firefly. And the pilot who was scheduled to fly the Firefly ship that night was a good friend of mine. I hadn't seen him in six months or seven months after flight school. And he said, you want to fly with us tonight? And I said, sure, why not? Not really. You know, this is this is how you get killed, volunteering for missions like that. And we went out in, and uh, did the Firefly mission one night. So I did Firefly for one night. Uh, did smoke. And that was the ship that laid down a cloud of smoke around an LZ to kind of screen what was going on in the LZ from, from the bad guys if they were around. And Smokey was used, even if there was nobody around, they just, we did it periodically like that. So, I mean, I did practically every mission. But I just um, mentioned this because periodically people will say to me, um, they just don't, they don't believe I was in Vietnam or something like that. And I, I find it hard to believe that people who claim to be in Vietnam were there because I know there were so many people who have claimed to be Vietnam veterans who never served in the military. Uh, they were just making up their stories. But I'm sure that in the past, and I know Stan Friedman had to have done this, was um, get my military record from the archives in St. Louis. And what he would have found when he got my records from the archives in St. Louis that I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Um, I know at one point after I had uh, been discharged from the Army, I went to college, took Air Force ROTC. As a ward officer, I could take uh, Air Force ROTC because I hadn't been commissioned, was, was the gag there. And um, after I got out of ROTC, I ended up as an intelligence officer. And I, I overheard Friedman ask a, a group of people once, was, was Randall ever an intelligence officer on active duty? 
And I'm thinking, you asked the wrong question, Stan. What you wanted to know is if I was ever an intelligence officer on extended active duty, because I had been an intelligence officer on active duty. Um, after Iraq, I'd been an ex intelligence officer on extended active duty. Anyway, my military experience is pretty well out there for everybody to see. If you want to see, I guess, my more war stories, as I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you can go to... Uh, www.vietnamgroundzero, all one word, vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, and you can find uh, my relatively truthful remembrances of Vietnam. You also uh, can go to the regular blog spot. I think there's a, there's a link to the Vietnam Ground Zero uh, spot there uh, to make it, make it a little bit simpler, simpler. But I just wanted to point out that, yes, I haven't really... Um, told any war stories that aren't true. I know that sometimes my memory has been somewhat faulty and I have letters to correct me on that. Uh, I mean, the letters that I wrote home that correct my, collect my memories on that. So I try to make it as truthful and honest as possible, give you an idea of what it was like to be a helicopter pilot in Vietnam at, uh, in uh, 1968 and 1969. But where I was going with this, and I kind of want to get into this, is we get to... Um, the liars, the charlatans, the fakers that permeate the UFO field. And I think it's important that we take a look at that information and we attempt to validate it as much as we can because when one of these charlatans is exposed, then it makes the entire field look bad and makes it much more difficult for us to get some of the information we need. Uh, I got into a discussion in the last two weeks about Philip J. Corso. And I was pointing out that I have a lot of trouble with Corso's book. As a retired lieutenant colonel, I uh, understood an awful lot of what he was saying. And having investigated the Roswell case for literally decades, I knew where he was wrong. What he was saying was wrong. I've been involved in convoy operations, which is an integral part of part of this. Um, I have been moving, not classified material, but weapons, automatic weapons across state lines. And I point that out because to move an automatic weapon, especially 50 caliber machine guns and the like, across state lines, you have to go through an awful lot of paperwork because of the nature of the weapons you have. And I, I equate that to moving any classified material across state lines going from one installation, say the Roswell Army Airfield, to Wright Field in, in 1947. And this becomes relevant with Corso because he claims that as they convoyed from Roswell to Wright Field, they did what we call a RON, remain overnight at Fort Riley, Kansas when he was there. He was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas in July of 1947. When um, they uh, stopped overnight, of course, they parked the trucks probably in a, and I say probably, in a um, secure area, which the MPs would guard and that sort of thing. And I would suspect, and this is what we did, although we utilized the personnel there to help us augment the security, we had our own people there. We may not have used as many of our own people as we would have had we not had that uh, capability of the assistance, but our own people were there. So we could watch 
our equipment to make sure it wasn't pilfered. Because periodically that happens on a military installation. I know you find it hard to believe, but periodically there is pilferage going on. When we come back in just a minute, I will finish this particular discussion and talk about some of the other problems that we have with people who are less than candid about their military experiences or their UFO encounters. So I will be back right after this on a different perspective. So please stick around. back alone talking about UFOs and things of that nature. When we went away, I was mentioning the convoy supposedly with the bodies that went from Roswell to Wright Field, stopping off in Fort Raleigh, Kansas, where um, Philip J. Corso was stationed at the time and explaining that, you know, in convoy, how convoy operations operate somewhat. According to Corso's story, the, um, crates were offloaded from the trucks. I don't know why. They weren't put into a storage facility that had refrigeration or anything like that. It was just moved from the trucks into the building. I don't understand that at all. I would have left them on the trucks and posted my guards around the trucks in the secure parking area. Corso says that a friend of his, a master sergeant, and they were on the bowling team together, called him and said that they had uh, he had to see this most incredible thing, that apparently the sergeant and his people were looking through the crates. Here's classified material, and these guys are just violating the security regulations. There should have been somebody responsible from the unit transferring it, meaning the 509th Bomb Group there as well. And he found a crate with the body in it, and he called his pal Corso. Now, in 1947... Although it was much worse in, prior to World War II, but in 1947, you still had a schism, schism between the officer ranks and the enlisted grades. And uh, Corso was a field grade officer at the time, which made it an even wider gap between them. I find it difficult to believe that he would have been participating on a bowling team with the NCOs. I find it difficult to believe that an NCO who's now violated security regulations and has clearly committed a crime would call a field-grade officer and make him complicit in that crime so that he can see a body of an alien creature. I just don't buy that story at all. That's my opinion based on my experience as a military officer, based on my experience as moving materials from uh, one state to another especially classified material. You deal with classified material at a much higher security level than you do normal convoy operations. And I think that's where um, this whole thing falls apart. We're dealing with classified materials here. There is no reason for Corso or his pals to have even looked at the crates, let alone gotten inside the crates to look at them. I find that very difficult to believe. There are other problems with Corso's story. Um, 
he claimed, and I saw him do this in Roswell, New Mexico, claimed that he had been the commander out at White Sands Missile Range. No, he had been a battalion commander assigned to um, El Paso. I want to say Biggs Army Airfield, but it's not. It's Fort Bliss, I believe, in El Paso. He'd been a battalion commander there who had a responsibility for part of the, the White Sands Range, but he was not the commander. And he, when he was questioned about that at this press conference, he said, no, he had been the commander as opposed to a commander. A completely different story. So I, I found that hard to believe. One of the things that kind of sparked this idea to talk about this was a fellow sent me some pictures that were supposed to be of the Roswell flying saucer wreckage. And he wanted to know if these pictures were authentic. Well, they're real pictures, obviously. But the problem is, if you look at it, you can see a jet engine in the wreckage. I mean, it's very clear in part of the wreckage that here is a jet engine. Well, I don't know of anybody who was talking about any flying saucers having jet engines. I mean, legitimate ones. There were a couple of... Uh, Hoaxes that involve jet engines and rocket engines involved in it, but nothing like this. This clearly was wreckage of an aircraft. Um, the second picture he showed showed trucks, military vehicles, and people on the site. The picture kind of looked like me. It was a, a, a model. I don't know. It just struck me as a model, but it probably was legit, legit, legitimate picture. But the terrain is all wrong. Now, you have to remember, I've been to Roswell, I don't know how many times. I go back and count, I suppose, um, 50 times, something like that. Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, and I, and I say the three of us because I, I know specifically, have been over the, the debris field, the impact site, the crash sites. We've been over all that area in New Mexico repeatedly. We have a good feel for what the train looks like. And in the second picture, the train does not look like de high desert in New Mexico. Granted, if you go up north around Taos, you get lots of mountains. And if you go over toward Magdalena, you get a mountain range that separates the uh, plains of San Augustine from uh, the Arizona border. And that's so, so you, you've got that kind of terrain. But where these things, where we know these things came down, whatever that may have been, the terrain just didn't look li right to me. I don't think it's a legitimate picture of the Roswell wreckage. And yet here it is on the internet as the legitimate Roswell wreckage. We ran into the same thing with pictures of the bodies. I think um, a, a number of years ago, Penthouse Magazine claimed to have obtained photographs of the Roswell aliens. And the picture I think they used in that magazine were the uh, alien creatures created for um, the movie Roswell, the Showtime movie Roswell that uh, was based on the books that Don, Tom, that Don and I had written. Uh, so we have to look at all of those sort of things. The point simply is we need to vet, we need to vet this stuff very, very carefully and not be so gullible that we embrace it all. And that was one of the problems I have with some of the people in the UFO field is they embrace everything. If you embrace uh, UFOs, then you must embrace cattle mutilations. You must embrace crop circles. You must embrace uh, all the crash retrievals, regardless of how idiotic they sound. You have to em embrace all the abductions, even the ones that are dubious at best. Uh, you have to embrace all of that stuff. You cannot say this is a bad uh, case. Jerry Clark and I argue about the Charles Witted case. That was the uh, airline pilots from 1948, and they drew the object they had seen, a, a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it and an exhaust out the back. 
I am convinced based on what I've seen and the reentry of the Zon 4 spacecraft, I think it was Soviet spacecraft that reentered and, and um, disintegrated in as it as it came down. A lot of people, a lot of people, a few people saw a cigar-shaped craft and, and square windows along along the, the side, and it was an optical illusion based on their perspective of where the craft was coming down and how it was coming down and how long they happened to see it. I've seen meteor um, um, compilations on YouTube, and one of them was called Meteor Compilation. It was three minutes and 19 seconds, and you could see where you, if, if you just got a glimpse at this, you get the, the idea it was a cigar-shaped craft coming down. So we have to look at those things, but, but the point is, Jerry Clark is convinced they saw a cigar-shaped craft. I'm convinced they saw a bolide, a very bright meteor, disintegrating. Based on my um, investigations and, and what I've seen in, as I took astronomy classes in college and that sort of thing. So I, I think that we have a legitimate disagreement there. Uh, he believes one way, I believe another way, based on how we interpret the evidence. But all, all too often, it, there is no interpretation available. You must, you must accept this or else. And a lot of stuff gets published as if it is true. And I suspect the person writing the article or preparing on the documentary may have reservations. But to get keep to be called for these documentaries, you have to present a certain persona. You have to be a true believer, unless it is a documentary that is debunking things. And then if you have a debunking attitude, well, that's the people you get on the documentary. And they're looking at the evidence through the lenses of their perspectives. And I, I think that all too often we miss that sort of thing. But one of the things I did want to talk about, and I meant to do it earlier, is the Leveland case. And I mentioned earlier in the program, the book I wrote on Leveland is now available on Amazon. It's um, you can get it as a hardback, you can get it as a paperback, you can get it as an ebook. you can uh, now get it as, they're, they're putting together an audio version of the book, which is exciting for me at least. But I think the, the point here is, this is probably the second best UFO case. And I say that because it's multiple witness, they're independent, the UFO interacted with the environment, clearly because it stalled car engines at, at level land on November 2nd, 1957. Stalled car engines, dim lights. You had people calling from around the Leveland area into the Hockley County Sheriff, and that would be, Leveland is in Hockley County, telling them independently. There's no way that they knew about it. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have the capability of Instagram or, or Twitter or instant communication amongst ourselves that way. We didn't have cell phones in the car. If you wanted to call the sheriff, you had to stop and find a phone, that sort of thing. And they were getting these independent calls. The important point here, and some one of the things I found, and I'll, I'll give this away in the book to kind of tantalize people. I learned, uh, Don Burlinson kind of hinted at this, but I learned for, for certain that the sheriff went out in, in searching for the UFO because after they got enough calls, he figured, I'm gonna go look for this thing. Newspaper reports and the Air Force said he saw it in the distance, red streak of light in the distance. Nothing happened. The sheriff got much closer. His car was stalled. I found a newspaper article where they talk about that, getting that close. The next day, and this is what Don Burlinson found, was that the sheriff took his car to the sheriff's mechanic and said, please examine the engine. Look at, what, look at my car. There would be no reason for him to do that unless he got close enough for the UFO to stall his car and he wondered if there was a mechanical reason for it. 
a number of the cars were examined mechanically to see if there was some kind of problem with the car that would cause it to stall. But you have to wonder, well, why would all these cars suddenly stall at one time in that one location? The Air Force, in their investigation that took most of six, seven hours, uh, talked to six witnesses. Only three of them actually saw the UFO. And so the Air Force claimed that um, there were only three witnesses. If you read the Project Blue Book files, you find at least five witnesses that they talk about. And they're condemning NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Air Phenomena, for saying there were nine witnesses. And I found witnesses at 13 separate locations mentioned in various newspaper articles and um, 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 the Air Force file and things like that who experienced their car stalling. In one newspaper article, the sheriff said there were dozens of people had called the sheriff's department about this, but we don't have the names, we don't have any information. So that information is kind of anecdotal, but I think it's important because you've got an awful lot of people talking about this. So all this is laid out in in, in uh, the Level Land book. This is a kind of a subset, the electromagnetic effects causing car engines to stall. It's kind of a subset of the UFO field. So the question I know you're asking yourselves is when was the first report of a engine being stalled or a, a electromagnetic effect. And that would be 1909 in England and some guy was riding his motorcycle and saw a glowing object in the distance and his headlight went out. When the object disappeared, the headlight came back on. First, first, I guess, experience with an electromagnetic effect. And those continue on today. I just came across one from just last year where a car was stalled by a um, by a UFO. And, there, and there's kind of an interesting subset to this, and, and there's only like three or four cases that we could find, is that some of the car's paint colors changed, <laughs> that they got close enough to this electromagnetic field, it changed the paint color of the car. And one guy got home, uh, and his wife said, did he buy a new car? Because the car had changed, I think, from, from a, a, a green to a gray, or from a gray to a green. But it's you know, this is laid out in the book, but it's a kind of an interesting subset. So we see the UFO interacting with the environment. So I think if we're looking for evidence of the UFO uh, approaches and we're looking for multiple chains of evidence, we have the independent witnesses seeing the thing. We have the um, electromagnetic effect being reported. There would have been ways to determine if there was a strong electromagnetic field in the presence of the of the, the vehicles, had they done it in 1957? And if you ask yourselves, well, did Condon Committee look at the electromagnetic effects? The answer is no, not really. They didn't. They didn't. Level Land is mentioned, I think, one time in their report. It says there was a big sighting in Level Land, Texas, and that's about it. I see by the clock on the wall that my time is pretty much expiring here. I. Uh, do want to say, take a look at Level Land. I have a book coming out in March, an updated version on Project Moondust. I think that the people interested in the Moondust will be interested in taking a look at, which is kind of a redundant way of saying that, I suppose. I will return in 167 hours. If you've enjoyed this monologue, let me know, and we'll do it again at, uh, in, the, in the future. If not, we'll make sure we find other guests. I will be having a guest in uh, on the show next week, so we'll uh, have a discussion about UFOs in that fashion. So let me thank you for tuning in and I will uh, be back.